So today's class, we're going to cover the third Purim Sicha, the third Purim talk that's published from the Rebbe in volume 16. A number of years ago, I was asked to give a, a, a three-part lecture in York University, and they had about 100 students there. Probably 95 of the 100 weren't Jewish, but it was a very lovely class, and we covered this topic. And it's a fascinating topic that we're going to discuss today, even though it's specifically about Purim, but really it's a old and, and relevant subject to the thinking of the Torah and the way Jews are to think. But first, in order to appreciate the content of the actual Sicha, what it's based on, because since it's based on the last verse of the entire Megillah that we read on Purim, I want to just do a recap of a general timeline of the political events that took place so that we could appreciate where we are in the story. So after the first temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, the, the prophet that lived at the time was, was the prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah the prophet. Now Yirmiyahu, besides warning Jews that if we don't repent, the temple is going to be destroyed. Once the temple was destroyed, God told him through prophecy to tell everybody that we're going to be exiled out of the land of Israel, but it's only going to be for 70 years. After 70 years, we're going to return back to Israel and we'll be able to build a second temple. So we held on to this prophecy, and you can only imagine the way things go when you're thrown out of your country, you're thrown into Babylonia, how much struggle there is in faith. Is this prophecy real or is it not real? You know, it's always this, this struggle. In addition to that, there was also the challenge that many people had, and especially uh, people that were readers into numbers, was to figure out when the 70 years start. Now, what's so complicated to decide when the 70 years begins? Because, and this is because if you go back in the history and if you go back into the books of the, of the Nach, of the Navi, mainly there is the books, the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra covers a large part of Ezra deals with the return that Jews came back to Israel and it deals with the whole calculation of about these 70 years. But what's important for us to understand is like this. King Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king. And he was the cause of the destruction of the first temple. But he did not exile the Jews out of Israel all at once. It happened mainly in two stages. First he came and he exiled the Jews out of Jerusalem. And the main targets that he had was the people that were the more uh, prominent Jews. And the way that it's put in the, in the Navi is that he took the Hacheresh Vahamiskar, where you could say that they were the artisans and the gatekeepers. And the Talmud translates those words, meaning it was the Torah scholars, the actual Talmidei Chachamim that he exiled. In other words, it was the people of influence because he wanted to pull down the city of Jerusalem. So he exiled the people of influence first. 
Thousands and thousands of Jews were ripped out of their homes and sent out of the country. Many were killed, but many were kicked out of the country and taken to Babel, to Babylonia, present-day Iraq. Now, a number of years later, I believe it was about 11 years later, he came back in, and then he took all the poor people and the laymen, he took everybody else and kicked out the rest of the Jews, and then he destroys the first temple. So Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's involved, who kills and takes the Jews out and exiles us to Babylonia. So right just there, you could right away start to say, when do you count the 70 years? Does the 70 years when the sages were taken out or 70 years when everybody else was taken out or when the temple itself is destroyed? So there's different ways in how to understand this calculation. But regardless, we don't have to get so much into that, but I just wanted to show you this one point. Now, there was a king after Nebuchadnezzar dies, even the great powers and kings of the world, nobody lives forever. So eventually comes a new king and his name is Koresh. I don't know all the English names of all these kings, but I'll give you the Hebrew names. We could search them later. Koresh comes before Achashverosh and he thinks about sending back in the Jews into, into Israel because he thinks it's 70 years comes another king named Belshazzar and he says that we're going to make a big party because the 70 years is finished and the Jews didn't go back. That means finally we're putting an end to the Jewish people and their hope for the land. He throws a big party. Hashem gets upset and punishes him badly. Eventually comes the king Achashverosh in the story of Purim. Now, during this time of of, uh, sorry, Koresh, by the way, sent uh, uh, a, a lot of Jews back into Israel through a leader called Zerubbabel. That was his name. He takes them back to Eretz Yisrael, to Israel. And they reestablished the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. And in the book of Ezra, you hear this, in the book of Ezra, the name of Mordechai, and this is very important, all this, to appreciate the story here. Mordechai is listed there right after number fourth of rank in the people in the Sanhedrin. So in the Supreme Court of the Judaic Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin, the way it worked was the big, there was a big Sanhedrin and a small Sanhedrin. The big Sanhedrin had 71 sages. They dealt with capital punishments. They dealt with the huge, huge issues. They were based in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, literally right by the temple for most of their, uh, of the time. There was also a small court, small Sanhedrin called the Sages of 23. But in any case, by this, by the court of 71, how did all the 71 rabbis of sages on the Supreme Court, how did they sit? So they sat in three rows. It was moon-shaped, a lower row, a higher row, and then the highest row. In each row, you had a designated seat. Number one is called the Rosh of Bezdin. He's the head of the whole court. Number two is number two, number three, number four. Now, what if somebody dies in the middle? So everybody moves up a rank. Right? So that's the way it worked. It was rated like by, by rank. That's how you got up to be the top of the best of the Sanhedrin. You had to be super, super Torah knowledgeable, of course, super spiritual, God fearing. You had to know all the languages of the world because you had to deal with any kind of case that came to you. There was no, uh, you know, translation systems we have today. So you had all this, there was a whole 
system and how it worked. Now, in the book of Ezra, in the first time when the Jews come back into Israel because they were allowed to go back in there, Mordechai is mentioned right after seat number four. Basically, he's number five. Number five to the top. You can imagine Mordechai, he's who he is now. Now, continuing to later, after Koresh, there was a big political uh, issues of people that did not like the Jews. They were anti-Semites that lived then in Israel and in Jerusalem. And they stirred up noise to the king of Kairish that he should stop the construction of the second, build, build, second temple. So construction eventually stopped in the, of the building of the second. So it started, but it stopped. And then all the, the, the then started the story where Kairish dies and who comes to the be the king the next is Achashverosh, the king of the story of Purim time. Now when Achashverosh is the king, he also, according to many commentaries, he, as you all know, the beginning of the story, Achashverosh throws a big party, right? And he throws a massive party for 180 days. Or a hundred, yeah, I think almost one hundred eighty days. He throws this this huge party that he's going to have for many many months. It's going to linger. But why does he make this party? Also, because he made a calculation that it was already seventy years past from the prophecy of Jeremiah. And since the Jews don't go back to Israel, they don't build the second temple. That means we're over. And therefore, he throws this big party. According to a lot of opinion, that's why he throws this party. Otherwise, why does he just throw a party? And we all know what happens. At the party, he gets drunk and he wants to see his wife in her full uh, beauty. And she re- looks into the mirror and she sees that she has all these pimples. And, and the story, as you all know, the story, as she is embarrassed to come out, Haman suggests to the king that to such a kind of terrible behavior that the queen won't come out. If we don't kill her, then what's going to be when all men ask their wife for something and they don't want to listen? No, everybody's going to say, look how the king did it. And he kills his wife, Vashti. The next day he wakes up sober and he realizes what he did. He needs now a new wife. And that leads us to the part where he has, where he finds Esther and Esther becomes his wife. Eventually, after Achashverosh dies, again, there's now an opportunity to go back into Israel. And Rashi says that this recording in the book of Nehemiah is 24 years after the first Aliyah, let's call it, you know, that we went up that's recorded in the book of Ezra. Now, we're going to see something very interesting in the book of Nehemiah when it records the Aliyah of thousands of Jews going up. And by the way, sad to say, but you know how many Jews went up after the 70 years? Only 43,000 Jews went up. So you can imagine the power of assimilating for 70 years what that did to us, right? Not everybody now all of a sudden was ready to go back to Israel. But in any case, when when in the books of the prophets, in the book of Nehemiah, it recounts the people that went up and the people of the Sanhedrin, we find that Mordechai's position, Mordechai's mentioned there, but he's not mentioned anymore as the seat number five. He's now mentioned to number six. That means something happened here that Mordechai was demoted from 
seat number five to number six. And what happened during those years? From the first time he went up, he was seat number five of this Sanhedrin. And now he's seat number six. For this, we have only one thing. What changed in Mordechai's lifestyle? The only thing that changed was that he went down to then later it got changed from Bavel, got changed to, to Paras, to, to Persia. And he goes into the capital city. And who's the one that helps all the Jews? During the story of Achashverosh and Haman, Mordechai is at the forefront. He takes a stand, that stand not to bow to Haman, and he gets involved in politics to help us out, to save the life of the entire Jewish world that was in terrible danger. Now, we find at the end of the Megillah, we find the following. And here's, let's go into the Sicha now, because now that you got this background, you could appreciate where we're going to go with this Sicha. In the last verse of the entire story of the Megillah, the verse says the following, that Mordechai was promoted in the king's palace and he becomes the viceroy of the Mishnah Lamelech. He becomes the, the second in command or the viceroy or the king's advisor. He gets a very, very high position, rank in the king's palace. Then it says the following words, Mordechai was favored by most of his brethren. Now, remember, every word in the Tanakh is precise. Here it says, Mordechai was favored, he was appreciated by most. Now, when you say by most of his brothers, we have the Talmud now. As we all know, the Talmud always picks up on the nuances, details of the Torah. And the Talmud in Tractate Megillah, where it talks about many hundreds of the nuances of words in the Megillah, stops on this word that says, what does it mean that he was appreciated? He was desirable. He was liked by most of his brethren. It's to teach you that not all his brothers liked him. Meaning that there were some of his colleagues that did not like him or did not approve what he was doing. Which is an amazing thing. And now who's these brothers that we're talking about? Ratsui means desired. You want. He was desired. He was wanted. To most of his brothers. Who's these brothers? Says Rashi. The brothers means his colleagues of the men of the great assembly, which means the high courts and it means the Sanhedrin, or you could say it means either the actual court or also the court was dealt with, with rulings over you know issues of life issues, uh, capital punishments. But we also had then called the men of the great assembly, the Anshe Knesset Agdola, that's where the word Knesset comes from, which was made up of 120 seats. And so either it was that or it was his actual brothers that were the sages on this rabbinical court. So says the Talmud that when the verse says he was liked, he was desired by most, it means that there was a minority group that did not approve his move. 
Why? What didn't they like about what Mordechai did? What could have been wrong? Come on. He went and saved the entire Jewish nation. If it wasn't for his guidance, Esther would have never done the move that she did. I mean, come on. He was, he was amazing in the whole story, as we all know. Says the Talmud. Because he wasted time from learning Torah and he went into politics. He went in to get a position. And he got a position in politics, but he, what, hello, at the end of the day, he was not learning Torah for all those years that he was there. We don't know exactly how many years he was there, but we do know is that the story of Purim from beginning to the end took almost 10 years. It wasn't just eh, one day there was this, this decree and the next day it was taken off. It was just schlepped out 10 years. So Mordechai for sure was there for about 10 years. So says the Talmud, why was there a minority group that did not approve of Mordechai did? Is because of this thing that he gave up from his learning Torah, which is so important, and he went into positions of authority. Then the Talmud says another thing. So remember, the one, the first proof to this idea is that it says clearly in the verse in the Megillah, he was desired by most and therefore we learn from that most means that there is not everybody and some, a small group did not agree with him. Then the Talmud continues and says, learning Torah is more important than saving the lives of people. How do we know this statement? We're going to go through this statement. So don't, uh, you know, don't fall asleep at this point. We're going to go through this, but let's go through it. The statement is, Learning Torah is greater than even saving the lives of people. Why? Because in the beginning we find that Mordechai was mentioned as number five of the Sanhedrin. In rank, he was the fifth to the highest. And later, as I mentioned before, 24 years later, when he's recounted the story of the, of the, the second uh, Aliyah, when the Jews went back up in the book of Nehemiah over there, he's recorded as number six. So you see that he was demoted from five to six. And it says clearly there as well, that's because Mordechai went into politics. Therefore, his colleagues lowered him in status of his Talmudic learning level quality sage. So that's the Talmud. So again, the Talmud has two proofs. Proof number one, that Mordechai was demoted was because it says he was liked only by most of his colleagues, but not all his colleagues. Proof number two is that first Mordechai is listed as number five of the Sanhedrin, and later on he's listed as number six in the Sanhedrin. So ask the Rebbe a question. This rule that the Talmud said, that God of Talmud Torah, studying Torah is greater has a greater quality than even saving the lives of people, we could have learned that out from the verse in the Megillah, the first proof, that he was liked by most of his colleagues and not by all of them. And there was a a minority that did not approve him. And they separated from him. That's the actual words. They separated from him. They didn't want to have to do with him. They walked away from him. Now, why? Because he stopped learning Torah to go save the lives of people. So now why does the Talmud have to go and bring me a second proof 
of the verses of his, of his seat in the Sanhedrin. In other words, what we need to try to understand is that if the Talmud brings us two proofs, there must be something that I'm gaining by the second proof. You have a clear verse in the Torah that tells me he was liked only by most, but not by all. Why do you need to go dig and tell me another thing that look in one book in the in one book in the Navi it says he's number four and F number five. Another book in the Navi says he's number six. Why do you have to go so far fetched to tell me that proof? Just tell me the proof one, which seems to be a clear verse that says clearly only majority of people liked it. Now, there are commentaries on the Talmud, one of them known as the Rift today in Yaakov, and over there, that he explains that when the Megillah says that majority liked him and a minority didn't, you could say that maybe that's only teaching you that in the level for the Sanhedrin people, for the, the sages that were on the actual rabbinical Supreme Court, for them, learning Torah is better than saving people. But that would be no proof that from heaven, he was also, that in other words, that from heaven, that would be also the rule that learning Torah is better. In other words, maybe just the sages amongst themselves, that's the way they feel. But who says that God agrees with that way of thinking that learning Torah is greater than saving a person's life. Therefore, the Talmud brings down the proof from the actual Torah. The Torah is God's Torah. So the actual Torah says clearly, here he's number five, here he's number six. So that would be like a proof that even the Torah, meaning even God himself agrees to this principle that learning Torah is more important. Says the Rebbe, if this is your answer, something's not smooth here. Because it says that there was a minority of people that separated from him. They, we're not talking about regular mundane people in the streets. You know, people in the streets, what they say and do doesn't, that, that doesn't mean that that's a reality. We're talking here about his brothers, which we said are his colleagues that are in, on the Sanhedrin. What's the whole thing of a person that's on this Sanhedrin Supreme Court? Their whole idea of life is learning Torah and giving rules according to what the Torah teaches. So what do you mean? I need a proof that from heaven, that's, that's the rule that learning Torah is more important. If the Sanhedrin sages came to this conclusion and some of them separated from him, that means that that is the Torah's view. That's why they separated. We're not talking about regular people that went away from him. We're talking about major giants. Everybody on the Sanhedrin is a major giant. Even if they were the lowest of those 70 people there, you can't even compare anybody to them. So I don't need to have an actual biblical verse to tell me that what, that, you know, learning Torah is more important than saving people. I know that if this is some group of sages walked away from him, not just regular sages either, Sanhedrin level sages walked away, then obviously that's the God-given principle that Torah is so, so important. So that's question number, number one. In addition to this, we have more question. Since you're telling me a principle rule, 
that God, Godol Talmud Torah. Torah, studying Torah is so huge, even greater than saving lives. If that's the case, why was Mordechai, because he gave up learning Torah, moved only one seat down? If he did the wrong thing, gave up learning Torah, he should have been kicked out totally from the Sanhedrin. If that's the rule. You see, what we're going to have to understand is to really, really appreciate what that means. Learning Torah is better than saving lives. How do you explain this whole thing? So we're going to have to get to that. But if this is the principle that that's why he was demoted, because he gave up of his learning Torah to go into politics to save people's lives, one second. If that's the problem, what he did, he should have been kicked out of the Sanhedrin totally. Why was he only demoted one seat? It must be maybe that it's not so bad what he did then we're going to have to figure out why even one seat down. So we're going to have got to figure that out. Number two, from the simple understanding of the verse, it's understood that Mordechai's growing in, in his political position till he becomes a Mishnah Lamelech. People like to call it the Visory of to the King, the second command. That took a number of years. During that time, he was obviously appreciated and liked by majority of his brothers because it said that only a minority of his brothers left him. So, I don't understand. If Mordechai was liked by by most of them, he had enough years to convince the minority that they should also believe with him that what he was doing was right. So it should have eventually, at the time we get to the end of the Megillah, the last verse, it should have said, Mordechai was appreciated and liked by all of his brothers. He had enough time to convince everybody that his view was right. Saving people's life is more important. So why did he not, what happened that he wasn't able to convince everybody and only majority went with him? Not, and not, so what's going on over here? So we could begin to appreciate what happens here if we, if we think a drop in the actual words of the Megillah. Now, again, it's very, very important for us to all appreciate this, that everything is in the words and the choice of the words that the Torah uses. Now the Megillah, by the way, just so you know, the Megillah is the last book that made it into the 24 books of the written Torah, just so you know that. It's the last book, even though if you look in the Tanakh, it's not placed as the last book, but it was the last one in time that, was, that happened, that, those events. So we still have to look at every word and letter in everything in the Tanakh, even in the Talmud a lot, but in the Tanakh even much, much greater emphasis goes to every word and letter. So what is the word that's used that he was liked by most of his brothers. And then when the Talmud says that some separated, it says some or few. Miksas means you could translate it as some of them or a few of them separated from him. That means that majority of his brothers of the Sanhedrin did agree with him. And the way Mordechai was conducting his life by leaving the Sanhedrin, by leaving his study hall and going into the politics to help the Jews. Therefore, it's understood that when it says that some separated from him, that's not a proof 
that studying Torah is greater than saving people's lives. On the contrary, the fact that it says that they separated, it also says that most of them found it to be in favor of what he was doing. That means they agreed with him. They were, they were one with him in his thinking. So we have to think, remember this word when it says most of them were with him in the same thinking and of some separated from him. By the way, when it says some separated, it doesn't say that they said you were wrong. They just separated him, meaning that they had another view of thinking. But it doesn't mean that they said he's wrong. From this we'll be able to appreciate that he was only moved one level down in the Sanhedrin. Why? Because most of them agreed with him. They, they, they saw they were in line with his thinking. Better give up learning Torah to go save the life of millions of people. But then you could ask a question the other way. If this is the meaning that most agreed with him and that's why he was only pushed down one level, you could ask two questions. Number one, since Mordechai's conduct was in agreement with majority of his brothers of the Sanhedrin, that should have seemingly override the minority group. Why did the minority walk away from him? We all know there's like a rule in the, in the Torah, you're supposed to go after majority. So if most of them agreed with him, if the emphasis is that most of them did agree with him, why didn't that overpower the minority? They should also go along. And number two, it comes out from all of this that the two quotes from the Talmud that comes one after the next, one is because it says most of them were with him. And the second one is because we found the source in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah where she was demoted from level five to level six, comes one after the next. But it seems like they're a contradiction one to the other. To the, it's both of them, sorry, both of them are a contradiction to the statement that learning Torah is greater, better than saving lives. Because what are you telling me? You're telling me that there's a minority that didn't agree with him and you're telling me that he was demoted one seat but one second. That's a contradiction to the fact that he was of, of learning Torah is greater than saving people's lives. Because if, he was, if it was really greater, then he would have been demoted or kicked out of the Sanhedrin totally. The fact that he was only demoted one seat. And the fact that only a few of his colleagues didn't like him seems to be a contradiction that Torah is greater. So is Torah greater that it's a problem that he went to save lives? Well, if it was really a problem, then everybody should have not liked him. So how do you explain these two ideas? One hand, we say that most people liked him. On the other hand, we say that learning Torah is better. One second, if learning Torah is better, why did most people like him? The other hand, you're telling me he was demoted one seat in the Sanhedrin. One second. If learning Torah is better, he should have been demoted many seats or totally out of there. So we need to understand how to reconcile these two ideas. Is learning Torah better than saving people's lives? Then how do you understand this, that he was only demoted one seat and still only a few people didn't see eye to eye with his view? Now, in the general way of understanding all of this, we need to emphasize again the word 
that the minority were Pirshu Mimeno. Pirshu. Pirshu means they separated. It does not say the common word that's used in the Talmud. Cholku Olav. They argued on him. It doesn't say minority argued on him. Let's Again, that's a very important word here. That doesn't say that they argued on him or it doesn't even say a quote that you see many times in the Talmud where it says that the sages are not happy with somebody. It says, Ein ruach It doesn't say that a minority of sages didn't like what he did. It doesn't, we're not even saying that. We're only saying a minority separated themselves from him. But we're not using any harder words than that. That means that separation is not an argument in other words, they did not argue and say, Mordechai, your way is against Jewish law. No, they didn't say that. They did not come out with that statement, Mordechai, going into politics, giving up Torah is against Jewish law. They didn't do that. Just says they went away from him. Meaning they had a different outlook, a different view. And our way is not your way. But at the same time, it also means that they agree that Mordechai's path is a path according to Judaism. In other words, they may have not wanted to follow Mordechai in his ways. Mordechai, you want to go do that, save all the Jews? No problem. Well, we're not doing that. That's fine. They didn't say, Mordechai, what you're doing is wrong. And this is a very important key. Now, to be able to appreciate this point that they did not argue, it's just two different ways of seeing things. A minority of sages saw that learning Torah, you should better stay here and learn Torah, don't worry about saving the world. But most of the sages felt, no, you got to go and save the world. Now, to appreciate this, the Rebbe comes now with a revolutionary insight here that will lift you off the chair. And he says like this, To appreciate this, I want to tell you a little bit of the background of the time when this happened. When the following story, this is all going to be based on an amazing story. And yeah, the story is like this. In 1927, the previous Rebbe was arrested by communist Russia. He was sentenced to be killed. Eventually that decree, that was on the 3rd of Tammuz actually. And the decree was turned over, 10 years Kastrama prison into exile. After 10 days, they end up taking him out. After a few weeks later, they said, we'll let you out of jail, but you got to leave the country. (laughs) You're too big of a a troublemaker. The Schneersons are too big of a troublemaker here for Russia. You got to get out of the country. So the previous Rebbe, at the time, he had a chassid named Mardchai Dubin, who was in politics in Latvia, and in uh, Riga, Latvia, and, and this man was able to get visas and a passport for the previous Rebbe to come to Riga, to move to Riga. Previous Rebbe says then he's not leaving without taking at least 10 people with him. And he's not leaving if he can't take his books with him. They allowed him to take eight train carloads full of boxes he was able to take. Imagine that. And we still have 12,000 of his books left in Russia. So imagine what he took then. And he takes this to Riga and he takes 10 people with him. Of course, he has his wife. He had him, his wife, him, his, uh, his two daughters, uh, three daughters. No, yeah, three daughters, 
and their their husbands and his secretary and his mother and her and her nurse anyways and his engaged son-in-law which is later becomes our rebbe now eventually he leaves russia i believe he leaves russia Isruchag, the day after Sukkot. So that means he came, this whole prison sentence, everything, he gets out of the 12th of Tammuz. Tammuz of El, three and a half months, packed out, moving out of Russia. Now when he comes to Riga, remember that the previous Rebbe saw with his own eyes the suffering of the Jews in Russia under communist regime. The previous Rebbe had 300 underground Talmud Torah going on going on throughout Russia. Hundreds of women's mikvahs built that their government did not like it. So he had a whole network, a web of going on. And he cared about his, the, Jews, the Jews there. There's a letter that he once wrote to the joint, collecting, trying to collect money to send matzah. And he writes there that there's over 3 million Jews that observe the mitzvahs and study Torah every day. Imagine that, what was going on in Russia then. 3 million from Jews before the war, right? Now, so one of the things he did when he was in Riga is he sent out letters to community leaders wherever he was able to reach to. And he said from time to time, I want to have a meeting with all you rabbis, community activists to come together to help to see what can we do for the Jews in Russia. Now, one of the great Torah scholars in, at that time was a man named, his name was Rabbi Yosef Rosen, but nobody knows him with this name. He's called, they call him the Ragatshavar Gon. I think he's the only person since the Vilna Gon, which lived in the time of the Alter Rebbe 300 years, 250 years ago, that had the name, title, Gon. Gon means genius. This man was a genius, like you can't even imagine this. If you were to, uh, to go online, you would be able to see a picture of him if you type in the Ragachover gone and you'll see what he looks like. This was a man like living in this world, but he was like in a different planet, you know? Now, this man, the Ragachover gone, was a genius. People would communicate with him around the world. He had, one of his things was that anybody that asks him a question, if you paid the postage, for him to send you back a response, he would send you back a letter. And most times he would send back postcards. Okay, and I found online, you can find online some, some of these postcards. See these postcards? Filled with his little script. And we have in the Rebbe's library, if you look online, we have the number of his correspondence that he had with the Rebbe. Now he died in 1936. So, we're talking about in the early 30s, the Rebbe is around 30 years old corresponding with him, with this, this, guy, this genius. In some postcards, he would have, because it was a postcard, most of his answers, he would only have, he would put like 10 sources of the Talmud or 20, sometimes 40 sources. You would have to check up all the sources to get to your answer. It was an amazing, amazing Torah, Torah giant. There's actually a book that came out, uh, I don't know, not last year, two years ago, from my great-grandfather, who was the chief rabbi in Sweden in the 30s and in the 40s. And uh, they found a few correspondences of halachic questions that he had with this Ragachavar gone.
So one of the people that the previous Rebbe invited to this meeting was the Ragat Shavar Goen. And he refused to come to the meeting and listen, listen, listen to his scholarly take on this. He said like this, that he said that in order for me to come, the question, in other words, for me to come, to give up my time of sitting and learning Torah, to come to your meetings, to help the Jews in Russia, in order to do this, it would be a question of a debate between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. <laughs> now, you may be familiar, we have two sets of the Talmud. We have the Talmud, that's the Babylonian Talmud, which has approximately 2,700, today we have 2,700 double-sided lengthy pages. If you could do one page in an hour, we'll probably title you the genius. So that's how much work it would be to go through the Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud, hence its name, was written by the Babylonian scholars, the people that were exiled from Israel and studied and opened yeshivas all over the diaspora. But there was also Jews that whenever we were able to get back into Israel and that studied the Torah, and they eventually wrote what's called the Jerusalem Talmud. So we have two sets of Talmud. So he, the Ragachavar, go and says to the previous Rebbe that my coming to the meeting is a question of a debate disputed between the Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmud. What is the debate? Now, you have to remember something, by the way. The Babylonian Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud, they didn't really communicate that much. People, he wasn't able to get to each other. Once in a while, we have stories where they sent a letter with a person by ship to Israel or vice versa to ask a certain scholarly, you know, sage opinion. But even when it's written up, it's written very different styles. But from it, things that are written, you can see that the view in one place is such and the view in the other place is different. And that becomes a different view, what we call an argument. And here, listen to this one. In the Babylonian Talmud, it says the following. Earlier Hasidim, there used to be Hasidim, today we have Hasidim too, but the, the, the earliest Hasidim, they used to daven every day for you know how many hours? Nine hours a day they would pray. Every day of the week, nine hours a day. Nine hours. Says the Talmud. The morning davening, they would prepare for it for an hour. They would pray for an hour and they had to unwind for an hour. That's quite intense. Afternoon davening, same story. An hour of preparation, an hour of davening and an hour unwind. And then the evening service, same thing. Three hours, hour prep, hour prayer, hour unwind. That was the earliest chassidim. So the Talmud in the Babylonian Talmud asks a question. It says, hold on a second. If they prayed nine hours a day, when did they study Torah? They, you're supposed to study Torah a lot. They didn't have a lot of time to study Torah. And then... Business. How did they live? They need to make some money. You got to go earn a living. If you sit and pray all day, how do you make a living? And the Gemara answers, because they were Hasidim, things worked differently. Number one, their Torah was preserved. What does that mean? 
that whenever they would learn Torah, they wouldn't forget what they learned. So they never had to review. Most people, when you learn Torah, you have to go back to the recording and take your notes and read it over if you want to remember. Otherwise, you, you most likely will forget. But because they were such holy chassidim, that their Torah was preserved. Whatever they learned, they learned the once, retained, they didn't have to worry about it. And therefore, what it takes a regular person to learn, let's just say 10 hours, for them, they could learn a once in one hour and they got it. So that's how they were able to learn Torah. How about their business? So it says business was a different story. Their business had a bracha. It was blessed. How do you understand that? So I think an easy analogy would be, is in today's society, most people, how could you make a, a, a good living? Ask anybody, once they get married, they're going to go get a job and try to work for eight hours a day, five days a week. And usually if you work five days a week for eight hours, you have enough money to be able to pay your rent and buy your food and, and give your charity and whatever, you, you know, your responsibilities. Now, and let's say you have a suit store. So if you have a suit store, you have to stay open eight hours in order to get proportionally enough customers to be able to make enough money to be able to live. So that business, you wouldn't call that a bracha. You would call that, I got paid for what I did. A bracha means something out of the ordinary happens. It says the Talmud, these people, they were able to open up their store. I'm giving this example. They were able to open up their store for a half hour. And they got enough customers that came in in that half hour that gave them enough money. They got a bracha of what it takes other people, eight hours. That's what you call a bracha. You were able to make that much money in less time. So they, because they were such great chassidim, in a short amount of time, they were able to make all that money. Their, their business was blessed. So you see the difference in the choice of words. Their Torah was preserved. Their business was blessed. Now you see there, there's a difference in that, right? You want to make you want to try to grasp this thing because this is going to be the driving point here. So again, the business, the Torah was preserved. Whatever they learned, it stayed in their heads. Boom. The business had extraordinary blessings. Now that's the Babylonian Talmud. How about the Jerusalem Talmud? The Jerusalem Talmud brings the same concept about these early Hasidim. And it says that they, because they, the same thing, they dive in nine hours a day, and the Jerusalem Talmud asks the same question, how do they uh, learn Torah, and how do they make a living? And here comes the subtle, it seems like subtle, picked up the rocket shover, he picked up on this nuanced difference. In the Jerusalem Talmud it says, because they were Hasidim, It says, their Torah was blessed. The Torah was blessed. Again now, the Babylonian Talmud said their Torah was preserved. But the Jerusalem Talmud says that their Torah was blessed. Now here comes, let's understand this difference, a major difference here. When you say something is preserved, that means you never forget it. But nothing new comes into your head. Right? I'd like, you know how they say today in computers? Whatever you put in, that's what the computer has. The computer is not smart. It's not the opposite of smart. Whatever you put in, it was like that with their heads. Preserved means whatever Torah you put in, that's what you got. But no new Torah could fall into your head if it's just the level of preserved. 
But if you say that their Torah was blessed, that means that they had a certain superpower, a super ability, that they were able to grasp ideas immediately without waiting any time. Most people, when you learn, you have to think about it. You got to, you know, take it in, reread it, think of it again and again, you know, concentrate, right? There's things you got to do. But when you say it's blessed, that means you got to the point, you got to the depth, you got to the resolve right away. Most times you have to read things 10 times. Now, this becomes, by the way, the whole difference in the style of the Babylonian Talmud, the way it's written, and in the Jerusalem Talmud. The actual style is different. In the Babylonian Talmud, they'll take 10 pages around to go back and forth and debate a subject until they come to a decisive conclusion. In the Jerusalem Talmud, in two lines, they got the same bottom line conclusion. It's amazing. A lot of people enjoy today to study the Babylonian Talmud more because you enjoy more to get to the bottom of the thinking. So you go back and forth, back and forth, till you come to the conclusion, right? Take it as a, as a modern example. Medicine, right? Which medicine would you rather go with? The medicine that they tried and the trials and studied it for decades and hours and who knows what, until finally they came to the conclusion that this medicine is good for this issue, right? Or do you want to go to another one that they tried it and one day they say, I'm telling you this is the right one. I, I know, right? It's very different style. Doesn't mean that one's wrong, but it's a whole different way of working. The Babylonian Talmud goes through, as a matter of fact, there's a verse in the, in the Tanakh that we use regarding the Babylonian Talmud. That's, it's in the book of Eicha, actually. In the book of Lamentations. There's a word there that says, In the Choshech, in darkness, I got my answer. Which really means this is a method in the way the Babylonian Talmud study works. You're not going to come to the conclusion in two seconds. You have to see it that I'm in a dark room and I have to figure out where's the opening that's a door to get out of this room. So you start tapping, you're feeling, all of a sudden you feel, you see it's a, oh, it's a big opening, that's the door. Ah, it's only a window. And then you start tapping more and more, more and you feel an opening, ah, and you realize it's a pot. And you look around more, yeah, open, it's a drawer. The uh, opening, it's a cup, right? Until you find the door, which is the way to get in and out. That's searching in a, through the dark room. You only get to appreciate and understand all the nuances of your space when you're figuring out your way to get out from the dark space. That's the way learning in the Babylonian Talmud is. And that's why it's challenging. Not everybody is ready to undertake that, but it's actually amazing to do it. There are countries today, I just had a guy came to me the other day, he wants me to take his kid into the school, he tells me that he's a convert, and he comes from Japan, and over there they're studying the Talmud in Japanese. That's what he's telling me. That's what he tells me. I told him to send me a copy. I'm curious, you know, who did that. I don't know if I would be able to read the copy anyways. But the point is that, you see, people are trying to figure out what is it that makes up the Jewish way of thinking. Instead, it's the analyzings of stuff. You remember the, the philanthropist in Toronto? His name Joe Joe Lubavik. Huge philanthropist. They once interviewed him 
when he gave that large donation to Mount Sinai Hospital, they, I think it was then, they asked him, what does he contribute? To what does he contribute his success of business? And he said, it's because when I was a teenager, I went to a yeshiva in Gateshead, England, and I studied the Talmud that taught me how to think. How to analyze, how to question the critical way of thinking. So the Babylonian Talmud gives you that. But the Jerusalem Talmud gives you precise precision immediately. So that's a different thing. Now, if you lived in Israel and you drank the water there, you sucked in the air from there, that's a different story. You could start thinking like that. But if you lived outside of Israel, you don't have that air from Israel. The air, the Talmud actually says elsewhere, that the that Avira, the Eretz Yisrael Machim, the air in Israel makes you smart. So whatever it is, however you want to contribute to it, but that's the difference in the thinking. The Babylonian Talmud again, you have to work on it and question to get to the bottom. The Jerusalem Talmud is different. Now said the Ragachover going to the previous Rebbe when he invited him for that meeting to see what we could do for the Jewish world of the Jews in Russia, he said, look, we have a rule. And the rule is that whenever there's an argument between the Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem, if you could ever figure out two views between the two, who do we follow? What's the concluding halacha? The law is like the Babylonian Talmud. It's understand, understood why. Because they did all the research and went through all the process to get to the bottom of it. So the the law always follows the Babylonian Talmud. So he said, since the law is like the Babylonian Talmud, not like the Jerusalem Talmud, that means that if I give up my time from learning, it's only going to be preserved. But I'm never going to get blessing to get extra Torah knowledge if I don't work on it. So if I learn Torah for eight hours, that's what I'm going to have. Eight hours of Torah knowledge. It's true. It'll be preserved. But I'm not going to gain 15 hours by only working eight hours of Torah. I won't get that extra bonus Torah. Because the law is not like the Jerusalem Talmud. Which over there it says that the early Hasidim, they got bracha to their learning. Meaning they could learn for one hour and get what it takes everybody else 10 hours to learn. So that's why he said, I, I have to say that I can't join this thing. Now, this thing here of these two different styles of learning, the Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmud, this becomes the difference that we have to understand that even though, when was the Talmud written? After the second temple was destroyed. So, Four or five hundred years after the story of Mardachai. That's when it was recorded, the Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud was recorded about a hundred years after the Babylonian Talmud. And the story with the previous Rebbe and the Ragachavar only happened somewhere around 1930. So what you see is that even though the Mordechai story happened before, the sages had the similar kind of different views that majority felt one way, but there was still a minority felt another way. And this is what we're going to appreciate on these two views, the way it later 
manifested itself to be expressed through the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud that people only picked up hundreds of years later on this nuances of differences. But this becomes the difference between Mordechai and, and most of the, the Sanhedrin that agreed with him and the minority. It depends on how you view the whole view of the Babylonian and the Jerusalem. The major big courts called the Sanhedrin Gedoyla. How did they collect their sages? Where did they come from? How did they make, how do, how do you get elected into the higher Sanhedrin from the small Sanhedrins? As I mentioned earlier, the small Sanhedrin was in other places in Israel. So you got promoted, they, they brought you from the, the minor league, you know, so to speak, right? They brought you up. Where was this big Sanhedrin? Their place was resided in Jerusalem. Well, at least for sure in Israel, even at times where it had to be moved. What do we see? That most sages in the Senate, most, remember, underline, most of these sages came from Israel. Especially in the time of the Mishnah and the men of the Great Assembly, these were people that lived in Israel. They were Torah scholar giants that were in the small court and later came into the Bikkur, but they were all Israelis, if you want to call it that word. You know, they were all people that were born and bred in Israel. But there was also some of the sages that made it into the Sanhedrin that came from Babylonia. Like we see this Hillel, the famous Hillel. The Talmud says he went up from Babylonia to Israel. There's another sage that's in the Sanhedrin. His name is Rabbi Nassan Habavli. Rabbi Nassan the Babylonian. So clearly he's from Babylonia. Now, we're also talking about 70 years after the first exile that King Nebuchadnezzar kicked out, right? He took out those leading Torah scholars out of Israel, right? And he sent them to Bav, to Babylonia. And then we're talking about the men of the Great Assembly that returned back, though they were exiled from the Nebuchadnezzar, but they were exiled, that they came back up to Jerusalem and to Judah. That when did they go up? In the first year of the King Koresh of his leadership, which was around 52 years after they were in Babylonia, because Koresh decided that it was already 70 years and he wanted to be nice to the Jews. He wanted to be on the good side. So he said, okay, go back and start to build the temple, as I mentioned earlier. Later, after they started to build, oh, people made a whole big to-do so that he stopped it. But he meant well. He said, let's, let's try to do it. But even after they came back, majority of the Sanhedrin were people that were born and bred with the Israelite, the Israel way of thinking, which was precision, precise, quick, and they always had blessing that helped it grow. And therefore, Mordechai, who was one of those, he felt that I must go into politics. I must become the Mishnah Lamelech, the second in command to the king. In order to save Jews. I. How could he stay in the Sanhedrin. And be part of the men of the great assembly. If the whole idea of the Sanhedrin is to be Torah scholars. And to devote your life 1000% to Torah. It's because if you were from Israel. Your learning was blessed. So even though you had to leave. For whatever reason. Your learning was blessed. And it. 
you were got all that gain without even being there. Therefore, for Mordechai, and most of them felt like that. But since there was a minority that did not see it like that, that's why. Different story. Okay? Now, they're worse because there was a minority that came from Babylon. So they saw it differently. They saw it that, no, you're not going to get that extra blessing. So you're going to lose in your Torah study. So you can't stay here. That's what they felt. And therefore, by them, they said their Torah is only preserved. It's not extra blessed. And therefore, you're, if you're going to go out to save people, you're going to lose out in your Torah knowledge. And to be in the courts, you have, that's your primary responsibility is Torah knowledge. So you're going to lose out. Therefore, some of them went on the side. They said, we can't grasp the level of Mordechai to be able to leave and also gain the knowledge, even though he's not here studying. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit because of the, the, the uh, limit in time, but we're going to just, let's just jump a little bit to further on in the Sicha, where the Rebbe brings more, the lesson and takeaway from all of this. By the way, important to know that after Achashverosh died, so he ha- him and Esther had a son. His name was Deryavesh. And Deryavesh, who was the son of Achashverosh and Esther, he already pushed for a major aliyah safely to Israel and eventually we were able to rebuild the second temple. But that was after Ahasuerus dies when we were ready to, able to get that. And by the way, in the Megillah, a couple times, when Esther came to the king and said, that I, I, said, I want to ask you something. And the king said, you could ask me up to half the kingdom. The Talmud says, what's this, what's this business that he answered half the kingdom? And the answer is, he was willing to give her anything, but don't ask that the Jews should be able to rebuild their temple in Israel. He wasn't ready to do that. So you see, all of this history here is surrounds about the subject of getting back to Israel and being able to build the temple. It's all connected there. But now let's go more into the, into the takeaway section of the Sicha. The Rebbe says, this really ultimately is the point of what it says in a famous book called the Tana Develi Over there it says that the, the great Sanhedrin they would have to go around Israel tie like, like, like um, ropes of, of steel around them on their pants to hold it up like to get it higher than, than, than their, their knees or their thighs and they would have to travel all around the cities of Israel and teach Torah to people. That was, that was their, their main function. That means that's the law that when the Sanhedrin were exiled from their place at the Lishkat HaGazis, right by the temple, and they couldn't even rule on capital punishment subjects, and they had to go around to all the cities to strengthen the people to learn Torah. So that from here we see that the main function of the Sanhedrin people is to teach Torah. And through that, we'll be able to save people's life. And for this, they have to lower down from their level in order to help other people. So too, we could say in our subject here, that even though that Mordechai had to go and become the Mishnah Lamelech, it was considered to be a descend for him 
from his great level as one of the partners in the Sanhedrin. And he had to move from level five down to level six. So the reason is because he, he, he wasn't able to have his full occupation 1,000% in learning Torah. But it was worth that descend in order to help the people. And this we find also became the way of life. And the Rebbe brings down that his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, who would, all he would want to do is study Torah day and night. That's all he would do is study Torah. But the Rebbe says he, would, he stole, an interesting word, word, word that he uses here. He stole from his time of learning Torah for himself in order to go help other Jews. And he would demand this from majority of his students, from a very substantial amount of his students and people that were followers and connected to him, that they should also do the same thing, even yeshiva students. So it's an unbelievable thing. Only in Chabad yeshivas you have this. That they would, they'll give up some time, let's say once a week or on Fridays, they'll give up time that they really should be learning Torah to go out into the streets to help people to learn Torah, get into conversations with people about Judaism, bring a mitzvah to people, Shabbos candles or tefillin, and so on and so forth. This becomes such an important thing. And this is, this teaches you that everybody is not just that your Torah is going to be preserved, but it teaches you here that if you follow in this way, you're even going to reach to a higher level. Because, he says, when it was the Ragachavar or other very select individuals in their generations, they were, like he says, a very few of the Sanhedrin they felt that they should not give up ever a minute. It's more important than learning Torah. But for most people, even Torah scholars, as the law is, that you should give up your time of learning Torah in order to save other people. Now, there's a very interesting uh, um, story, another story he brings down here that I want to share with you at least briefly. And he says like this, the previous Rebbe in 1930. Seven. He said he he. It's printed in his talks of 1937. He said the following. He said that his father, the Rebbe Rashab, one time had a dream, and he saw the Balshemtiv came to him, and the Balshemtiv taught him seven Torahs, seven Dvar Torahs. And he recorded, the, and he told over to his son when he woke up all the seven Torahs that he heard from the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov lived, I, mean, I don't know, 150, 200 years before the Rebbe Rashab, 150 probably. But he came to him in his dream and he told him, and he saw him in the Garden of Eden and he taught him these seven Dvar Torahs. And one of them was, the seventh one is the following. He told him like this. There's a verse that says in the book of Yeshaya, that the Yeshaya, the prophet Isaiah says to the city of Jerusalem, who was desolate after the destruction of the temple, the ruins, he says to the city, Kumi Ayri, get up, rise, my light, Kiva because your light is coming. Ukvod Hashem and the glory of God will shine on you. In other words, get up, it's time to shine again your glory because Hashem's glory is coming down on you. That's the verse. Said the Baal Shem Tev. 
you, when it says get up, he says you leaders of the Jewish people, that you put aside your learning Torah and your own personal service to God in order to help out other people. What's going to be with you? That's what it means, get up and shine. This means that for the leaders of the Jews, the Nisiyah Yisrael, they have a special blessing. That not just don't they lose out of their learning when they don't learn, on the opposite. The light and the glory of God will come down on them. That means that they're going to have, in a non-comparable level way, they're going to have even more than just a blessing level. And by the way, when you think about this, look at our own generation. And when I was brought up in Crown Heights, just take my years from when I was bar mitzvah and onwards, when I was, I would say, old enough to get to, you know, catch the scene, what's going on. When the Rebbe's wife passed away, the Rebbe started davening shachris, which he used to pray by himself in his room. He came out and davened with us in the minion three times a day. From 1986, every Sunday, instead of the Rebbe staying in his room learning Torah, he would go out and hand out dollar bills for tzedakah to hundreds of thousands of people that would file by him, ask him questions. Even before my days, when he used to meet people in private audiences, he didn't have time to meet people during the day because he was so inundated in writing back letters and responding to people and so on and so forth. He would meet people from 9.30 p.m. or from 8.30 p.m. And it would go until the sun come up in the morning. First it was once a week, twice a day, and it came three nights a week. Eventually, in 1978, he has a terrible heart attack. But imagine this, giving up this time. And even, again, davening three times a day, giving out the dollars on Sunday, giving Torah talks by night, giving out dollars many times after Meir by night, going to the oil and standing on his feet and praying and reading people's notes for blessings day and night. And all this, instead of him being able to work on his own growth, his own study of Torah and mitzvahs. Yet, the blessing was there. He came out, he gave a fabrengan every single Shabbos, gave talks of all these novelty ideas on learning Torah that you would think that he would have to sit from weeks and weeks to be able to come up with this amount of Torah to teach. So you see the blessing that was there that for the Rebbe, and he's telling us that whoever's close and wants to do this and help out others, not just you won't lose, you're going to gain in ways of blessing. And this becomes the lesson from the way Mordechai conducted his life for all of us in reality. And like the famous Torah from the Baal Shem Tov, there's a law that says that if you read the Megillah backwards, you have not fulfilled your obligation. If you read chapter 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 3, 2, 1, you didn't fulfill your mitzvah. A lot of people would rather do that. You don't want to get boggled by the hardship of the story. Go straight to the miracle part. Read the end parts first. Why go? Why do you have to go from the beginning? Right? Said the Baal Shem Tov, that the law is not just physically, if you read it backwards. Said the Baal Shem Tov, if you read the story as if the story happened backwards in time and it's not relevant today, you have not fulfilled your obligation of reading the story of the Megillah on Purim. That means if you read the Megillah and you say, ah, this happened, yeah, what year was this? This happened around, you know, the year 3000 of creation or whatever the number year it is. That's no, no, no. You have to read it like it's something that's happening today. We need to live the way Mordechai lived to become the Mishnah Lamelech 
and search, as the end of the verse, the last verse says, All he seeked was the goodness for his nation. He seeked and searched and spoke for peace, for all his, for all, not most, for all his offsprings. And even though for many people this would be considered to be a descend in your life, because you would have to give up time from your own levels of perfection, it's worth it for the benefit of many others. And we, and we could see this, that in every single person individually, that your soul comes down to this world as the expression in the Zohar is, and it's brought down in the Talmud, that your soul comes down from a very high mountain into a very deep, low pit. That's the example. Why does it come all the way down? In order, the soul comes down in order to master your body and your animal soul and the space around you of the world. To conquer it and to make it into a dwelling place for Hashem. And then, after a person gets married, your soul is in this world. You grow, 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 grow. Eventually you get married. And then you become the ruler of your own house. And as it says, that a good, pious woman always is on the same team as the man, even though the learning bar may be more of an obligation for him, maybe because she has other responsibilities, it works together. They're supporting each other in this. So it's a team here. And as it says that when you become a chassan, you're going down a level because you're going more into the material things of the world. So you have to give up on all these pleasurable stages where you're able to float in your spirituality and you have to get involved, get, get your hands dirty, so to speak, in the world. And all this helps you elevate. How do you elevate yourself? When you work in community things, do things for the community, help people, give out packages, call people, make them feel good, see where they are, see how they're doing, drive a person somewhere, whatever it is. Ah, you're going to have to give up from your class maybe. Figure out a way how to find time for that stuff too. Like it says, that if a person is learning Torah and that's your occupation, it says, you still have to stop to read the Shema. If you're at a very high level like the Rashbi, you know, you learn, you, you learn, learn, learn the whole, the, your whole life 24-7, you still have to stop for Shema. But you know what it's interesting it says? It says if you work for the community, you don't even stop to say the Shema. That's an unbelievable thing. And I actually went to check it up. I was like, I couldn't believe like these words. I never remember reading this. The Alter Rebbe rules, and it's brought down in other sources too, that, and the Rambam brings it down too, that if you're Isaac Betzar if you toil in community affairs, you're, it's so important that you don't even stop to say the Shema, which is a biblical commandment to say. You would think through doing things for the community, you're losing out on Torah and your own greatness. To the point where the sages say in the famous story in the Chumash, where you had that famous story with Moses, where it says that Moshe told Hashem that it's it's very exhausting, and you know what what's going to be you know when when, when I when, when I'm gone, like how how are we going to do this? It's such hard work, and Hashem tells Moshe gather together the seventy elders, and I'm going to spread your spirit, 
your ruach. I'm going to spread it on, spread it onto the other seventy, so they could also be rulers and and help out. And then Joshua comes to Moses and says, "Whoa, there's two people. There's from the seventy. They're still stuck there in the tent. Elder the Medat." They're, they're giving prophecy because they said that Moshe is going to die and Joshua is going to lead us into Israel. And Joshua gets very offended. He doesn't want them to say that his teacher is going to die. So he comes to Moshe and he says, look what these people are doing. They're saying these prophecies. Moshe says, God bless them. Let them have prophecy. I'm so happy. Let everybody have prophecy. You know, But over there, the, the commentaries say that what Joshua was saying was to Moshe, give them work to do in the community and all their problems will go away by itself. Give people community hours. Give people work to do to help others and the problems will go away. In other words, be busy in things of helping out and through this, you'll have wondrous, huge benefits that will come. And if this is the way it was by Mordechai regarding to saving the body of all, the bodies of the Jews, in other words, their physical part, certainly it's so to save the Jewish souls that we have to give up so much and devote ourselves of our own self-great levels to be able to help them. This will be a great blessing to Lecholzar, to all the offsprings, till the point that the Jews, everybody will do tshuva, and we will have the redemption speedily right away. And this is a compilation, Sicha, that was edited by the Rebbe, but it's actually from three different Farbrengans that were collected together, from a Purim Farbrengan in 1970. Three and from a Purim for bringing in 1975 and from a Shabbos Parsha Kisisa for bringing in 1975 and it actually got published ultimately in 1977. But that's the actual Sicha that we just learned of this amazing concept here that it's not a demoting, it's actually an elevation by going out and helping to other people.